Welcome to our continuing 2021 educational webinar series. I am Katherine Short, Partnership Marketing Manager for First Healthcare Compliance. At First Healthcare Compliance, we help you with a comprehensive compliance management solution tailored to your business. A hospital, hospital network, healthcare practice of any size, billing company, or skilled nursing facility, and we help manage every aspect of a compliance program, and our training library provides hundreds of modules that are easy to assign and track. As part of our complimentary educational webinar series, we bring you experts from around the country to discuss relevant topics in the healthcare industry. We are so pleased to have Rachel V. Rose, JD, MBA, a principal with Rachel B. Rose, attorney at Law PLLC, Houston, Texas, with us today. Ms. Rose has a unique background, having worked in many different facets of healthcare, securities, cybersecurity, as well as international law and business throughout her career. Her practice focuses on a variety of cybersecurity, healthcare, and securities law issues related to industry compliance and transactional work as well as representing plaintiffs in Dodd-Frank False Claims Act whistleblower claims. In addition to being extensively published and a sought after prese presenter and quoted expert, Ms. Rose holds an MBA with minors in healthcare and entrepreneurship from Vanderbilt University and a law degree from Stetson University College of Law, where she graduated with various honors, including the National Scribes Award and the William F. Blues Pro Bono Service Award. Ms. Rose is licensed in Texas and is admitted to a variety of U.S. district courts as well as the U.S. Supreme Court. She is a fellow of the Federal Bar Association and currently she is the chair of the Federal Bar Association's Government Relations Committee, a board member of the Federal Bar Association's Key Tom section, the co-editor of the American Health Lawyers Association's Enterprise Risk Management I'm so sorry, a board member of the Federal Bar Association's Key Tom section, the co-editor of the American Health Lawyers Association Enterprise Risk Management Handbook for Healthcare Entities, second edition, as well as the co-author of the books, The ABCs of ACOs and What Are International HIPAA Considerations. She has been named consecutively to the Texas Bar College the National Women Trial Lawyers Association's Top 25 and Houstonia Magazine's Top Lawyers for Healthcare. In 2019, she was also named to the National Trial Lawyer Association's Top 100, as well as First Healthcare Compliance's top 2019 Top Presenter. Ms. Rose is also an affiliated member with the Baylor College of Medicine's Center for Medical Ethics and Health Policy, where she teaches bioethics. See www.rvrose.com for additional information. Before we begin, I would like to mention at First Healthcare Compliance, we strive to be a trusted resource for compliance professionals. Each and every month, we celebrate their hard work and dedication with our Compliance Super Ninja with recognition. Today, our team is turning the spotlight on Super Ninja Jean Bassford, Human Resources Generalist at Maine Nephrology Associates. Jean says, I love working for a medical practice with such a caring staff, both clinical and non-clinical. 
We all work hard to make things run as smoothly as possible so our providers can give the best possible care to our patients. Congratulations, Jean. Our team is honored to have the privilege of working with you. A copy of our slides is available for download on the control panel. Feel free to submit questions into the question box on your control panel during the presentation. We will address questions at the conclusion of the presentation. Your PACOM and PMI CEU certificates will be emailed to you following the broadcast. Your PACOM certificate will come directly from PACOM and your PMI certificate will come from our email. There is no need to request either one. Additional CEU opportunities will be available to BC Advantage members following the live broadcast. See their website for details. So Rachel, a very warm welcome. Thank you so much for coming back today. A very, very warm welcome. Thank you. Catherine, thank you. It's always my pleasure to collaborate with First Healthcare Compliance and I'm honored to be here. Thank are you. we ready to start? We are, we are, thank you. Oh, you're welcome. So today's topic is document retention and destruction. And while it sounds like a very mundane topic, it's also one that is vitally important for organizations to appreciate across a spectrum of reasons. And we will dive into those momentarily. So first and foremost, no presentation is complete without a disclaimer and the information presented is not meant to constitute legal advice please consult an attorney for advice on a specific situation and the information presented is current as of the date of the original recording now not surprisingly there are a lot of changes that are going on right now in light of cybersecurity, as well as some of our securities laws and other laws, as well as procedural items, including some of the federal rules of evidence. There are proposed changes. So we are going to be delving into some of that today. So it's important to look at government websites in a timely manner, as well as if you are an attorney checking out the federal rules of civil procedure and federal rules of evidence as well as the local rules of the court now today's agenda has really five main items first why is complying with document retention and destruction as well as the laws very important and this is an external requirement made by a variety of different laws. And then you can have internal requirements which need to be set forth in policies and procedures. Then what laws require document retention and destruction? From there, we'll delve into some cases and procedural issues and then segue into policy and procedure suggestions. And finally, takeaways and conclusions. Now, the importance of compliance, answering the why. Why is document retention and destruction so critical to any organization, regardless of its size, and especially in healthcare? 
So this slide emphasizes the importance of document retention and appropriate destruction. There are a multitude of reasons that one really should be conscious of making sure the documents are retained and appropriately destroyed. First and foremost, a good reason is the increase in cyber attacks and more specifically ransomware attacks, as well as the black market value of both protected health information and sensitive, personally identifiable information. So even if we hearken back to the beginning of the pandemic, between March of 2020 and April of 2020, it was estimated that there was approximately a 400% increase in ransomware attacks. The other part of that is the ransomware has become more sophisticated and ransomware, as everyone should know, is when someone takes data and holds it hostage for its return as soon as a payment is made. And there's a lot behind ransomware itself, and that's a topic for a completely different webinar, but that's just one of the reasons you wanna make sure that your documents are retained for an appropriate amount of time. It should be offline or in another portion of the IT system so that in the event of a ransomware attack, you have your documents backed up. The black market value of PHI and sensitive PII is something that the FBI as well as Ponymon, which is a reputable organization that publishes a variety of cyber types of white papers, has illustrated PHI has a higher black market value than even sensitive personally identifiable information such as credit card numbers and social security numbers and so forth. And that's because people can utilize the information to perpetuate additional types of fraud. Second, laws require it and in some cases there could be criminal penalties. Next, M&A due diligence. M&A due diligence is exceptionally prevalent in the healthcare industry. And in my experience, I've seen the gamut run between substandard due diligence and then due diligence that is done exceptionally well. Hopefully, you'll, if you are considering being acquired or acquiring an entity or merging with an entity, you should be really looking at policies and procedures as well as what the organization is doing with their data. A key reason is that if these safeguards are not in place, these technical, administrative, and physical safeguards, which include document retention and destruction, the value of the purchasing price or of the deal could in fact diminish. Typically, one would put that in the liability category. What's our liability moving forward? And another item to consider along those lines when negotiating this is, are you going to negotiate that the acquiring entity be responsible for previous 
acts. And typically, at least for a set period of time, they will be responsible, but not always. So that's something that you really wanna delve into. Policies and procedures that define the length of time that certain documents are required to be kept, that's exceptionally important because different documents, either from a common sense standpoint, there are certain documents that you're going to want to keep for the life of the organization. One would be if you owned land, uh, you want your mortgage and any other documents associated with that. You want your financial statements going back to the company's inception. You want leases going back to the company's inception. However, there are other types of documents that you may keep for seven years. With emails, there might be an automatic destruction of emails after a set period of time. But again, you have to consider the types of emails that are being being destroyed. Now, evidentiary issues in anticipation of litigation or during a legal proceeding, oftentimes if you're in federal court, you will be beholden to either the federal rules of civil procedure, or if it's criminal, the federal rules of criminal procedure, or the federal rules of evidence. It's important that your attorney keep up to date on the various changes that are proposed by the Rules Committee, as well as appreciating when the rules actually change. For example, Rule of Evidence 702, which deals with expert witnesses, is up for some changes right now, and the proposed changes have been set forth to the Rules Committee. It's just a matter of whether or not they're going to adopt them. So again, it's something that you need to be anticipating in light of whatever rules govern a legal proceeding, but also it could be your internal legal hold policy. So if you receive a demand letter or a communication has occurred whereby there is a reasonable anticipation of litigation, you need to invoke your internal legal hold policy and sequester all of the items and set up a spot for those to be housed. Now, sanctions, penalties, and or criminal action by the government for obstruction of justice. Obstruction of justice can occur in a criminal proceeding. And oftentimes what will happen is an organization will receive a preservation letter from a United States or another government entity, or it could be from, for example, the United States Department of Justice. And in this instance, you absolutely want to make sure that you're not only invoking your legal hold policy, but that it comes up to the point where you've made sure on your checklist that you have everything that the government has asked for. Now, there are different scenarios that can arise. You could be, for example, a technology company or an electronic health records company that is housing the data that the government wants preserved, or your company can be the person of interest or target or subject of the actual criminal 
investigation. So I always advise my clients, and I'm not a criminal lawyer, so depending on what the facts and circumstances are, at a certain point, I bring in criminal counsel and have my client work with them so that nothing is missed from a procedural standpoint that could land them in additional legal trouble for obstruction of justice, for example. So what are some of the relevant laws and standards? Let's start with NIST and FIPS. NIST is the National Institute for Standards and Technology. It falls under the umbrella of the U.S. Department of Commerce, and it's not new. It has been around for approximately a century, and at the beginning, its role was more related to meets and bounds and metrics and different measurements, weights and measures. But as technology became more sophisticated, beginning in the 1940s, the shift really trended more towards computers and security on a cyber front and not necessarily just a slide ruler. So fast forward, NIST sets forth publications. And although they say they're guidance documents, a lot of laws and government procurement contracts require complying with NIST and oftentimes FIPS, the Federal Information Processing Standards. And although it says in the first bullet that FIPS publications are intended for use by federal government agencies to protect non-national security federal information systems, it's important to note that as more and more government organizations are transitioning to the cloud, and the requirements from the Department of Defense and other government agencies are becoming more robust in terms of technical, administrative, and physical safeguards. It's just something to be conscious of. I always recommend to my clients complying with FIPS and NIST standards, and that way you know that you're covered FIPS has their own publications, but FIPS is related to NIST, and NIST actually develops the FIPS publications when required by statute and or there are compelling federal government requirements for cybersecurity, and NIST has determined that there are no acceptable voluntary consensus standards available. Now, if we step back for a moment and think of the May 12th of 2021 executive order that the White House published. Not surprisingly, the president called for collaboration between the government or the public sector, as well as the private sector, because cybersecurity is intertwined between the public and the private sector. This is not new for a president to do. In fact, stemming back through the past four presidential administrations, all of them have issued one or more executive orders requiring greater emphasis and collaboration in the realm of cybersecurity. So NIST does work closely with stakeholders in the government, industry, academia, and other organizations during FIPS publications and process development standards. The Development process provides multiple opportunities for stakeholder input. 
FIPS publications become official federal government standards when approved by the Secretary of Commerce and announced in the Federal Register. FIPS publications are reviewed by NIST at least every five years in order to determine whether they should remain unchanged, revised, or withdrawn. And as we'll see in a couple of slides, this is absolutely material as the government begins to require NIST or if they don't require NIST specifically, it is the standard of care, so to speak, and it could come up in class actions. It can come up in negligence or recklessness cases. And it can also provide the basis of a safe harbor, which is what we're going to see in a few slides. So document retention, here are some overarching items that everyone should be aware of. First and foremost, you wanna make sure that the type of document that you are retaining complies with relevant laws. So for example, HIPAA, as we're gonna see in a couple of slides, sets forth a general requirement of a six-year retention period. However, many states have an additional requirement or a longer length of time, so you need to make sure that you're complying with the state law standard. In Texas, for example, it's seven years, and a lot of states have a seven-year retention period. A caveat that you need to be conscious of is, A, if there is litigation going on, and B, if a minor's records are relevant, because typically under state law, there's a certain period of time from when a minor either becomes emancipated or reaches the age of majority, which is 18 in every state that I'm aware of. And from then there's a set period and that varies from state to state as to when, for example, a negligence case can be brought. So you wanna make sure that you're checking your individual state laws and just making sure, or for example, if you have a pediatric practice, that should be something, or if it's a children's hospital, that should be front and center in every policy and procedure, as well as document retention and destruction. Make sure sensitive data and sensitive personally identifiable information are stored in a secure environment that has been evaluated at least annually. And for those of you who have heard my HIPAA presentations, there are five main items that can really help reduce the risk of a breach and help ensure that an organization's cyber or an IT environments are in fact secure. First, conduct an annual risk analysis. Second, make sure that policies and procedures are reviewed at least annually and are up to date. Next, train your workforce annually. Fourth, make sure that there are business associate agreements in place between relevant entities. And lastly, make sure that your data is encrypted both at rest and in transit. Next, you wanna make sure that sensitive data, which includes PHI and sensitive PII, are stored, again, in a secure environment, but also you wanna make sure that you know the ingress and the egress of that information, because with the 
advent of increased telework situations, it really does put a strain on cybersecurity because a person's home typically is not as secure. A lot of businesses don't ask for the Wi-Fi security, right? What level of Wi-Fi are you using at your home? All of those things are absolutely material and should be incorporated into any teleworking policy or telehealth, for example. Now, keep a log of all requests for information. This would not only be your legal hold or a subpoena type request, it could also come in the form of a request from a patient under HIPAA. That's required under HIPAA because a patient has a right to know who their information has been disclosed to. In the event of anticipated or actual litigation, legal hold, court order, or document preservation request, immediately utilize a prepared checklist to sequester and preserve the information. And finally, again, to emphasize, you wanna train workforce members on the importance of document retention and destruction. So let's move into HIPAA. HIPAA stems back to 1996. In fact, it was signed into law on August 21st of 1996. It's also known as the Kennedy Casbaum Act. And if you're interested in HIPAA, it is its 25th anniversary this year. And First Healthcare Compliance and I have collaborated on a webinar, one that should not be missed on the week of HIPAA's anniversary. So first and foremost, among other things such as COBRA and the establishment of healthcare spending accounts, HIPAA also created the need for a consistent framework for transactions and other administrative items. Additionally, one of those items that came out of that was the privacy rule. So although the privacy rule was initially published in the Federal Register in December of 2020, there was a related publication in January of um, 2000, I'm sorry, I said 2020, and I meant to say 2000. So in January of 2001, there was a subsequent privacy rule publication in the Federal Register. And then in August of 2002, what I call the final privacy rule was in fact published. The privacy rule applies to all forms of protected health information, regardless of whether or not it's oral, paper, or electronic. And by way of contrast, in 2003, when the security rule was published, that applies only to electronic protected health information. Now, although the security rule was published in 2003, it did not become effective until 2005 in order to give organizations the ability to get up to speed and to get those technical, administrative, and physical safeguards in Place. In 2009, the Health Information Technology for Economic and Clinical Health, the High Tech Act, was passed as part of the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act of 2009, 
The biggest driver behind the High Tech Act was A, to shift organizations away from paper and into a electronic medical record type of environment. The breach notification rule was published in 2009. Interim proposed rules were published in February of 2010. And then the final omnibus rule was published on January the 25th of 2013 with an effective date of March 26, 2013, and compliance for most of the provisions on September 23, 2013. The site for that January 25th Federal Register is 78 Federal Register 5566. And because of the liability between covered entities, business associates, and subcontractors becoming very expressly stated. It's just something that one needs to be aware of because there really was a compliance shift in the industry by not only covered entities such as there are three main buckets. We have providers, healthcare claims, clearinghouses, and health insurance companies, but there were also the business associate liability and its subcontractor liability. And we saw that with the OCR audits through their pilot programs, part one and part two, where they really started looking at the entire arrangement and the effects of a potential HIPAA breach. So HIPAA has its own requirements for appropriate document retention and destruction. And I mentioned it in passing a few moments ago, but specifically subsection of the CFR 164.316B2I says that such records must be kept for a minimum of six years after their creation or if the document outlined a policy six years from when the policy was last implemented. Now, state laws, as I mentioned, generally govern how long medical records are to be retained. HIPAA itself has the administrative simplification rules that require a covered entity, such as a physician, billing Medicare to retain required documentation for six years from the date of its creation or the date when it was last in effect, whichever is later. HIPAA requirements do preempt state laws if the state laws require shorter periods. However, as I mentioned earlier, if the state requires a longer retention period, then you have to make sure that you're meeting that longer period. The HIPAA requirements are available specifically at 45 CFR 164.316B2. Now, the privacy rule also mentions that while HIPAA does not include medical record retention requirements, it does require that covered entities apply appropriate administrative, technical, and physical safeguards to protect the privacy of medical records and other protected health information for whatever period such information is maintained 
by a covered entity, including through disposal. So it's really bifurcated here. As we saw on the previous slide, the 164.316B2 is a separate section of the CFR. This here, once you start getting into the safeguards for EPHI, you're completely under the umbrella of the security rule. And a new law that everyone should be familiar with is the 21st Century Cures Act, which really integrates HIPAA's privacy rule, the security rule, and the High Tech Act in order to get patients their information in a more timely manner and through different mechanisms versus just traditional mail or email. As long as there is an exception to information blocking met, and this is an entirely discussion for an entirely different day, then a, an entity does not have to provide the information in the format that the patient requested. But there is a lot of documentation and a lot of responses that need to go back and forth. And that's a different webinar and different writings that I've done for a different day, but it's something you should also be taking into account. Again, not only for the compliance side, but also in the sense that patients are always entitled to know who you gave their PHI to. And it could be another physician for a consulting purpose, which is completely fine. But now as part of the 21st Century Cures Act, those types of disclosures are available to the patient. Other CMS record retention requirements. So first and foremost, CMS itself requires records of providers submitting cost reports to be retained in their original or legally reproduced form for a period of at least five years after the closure of the cost report. This requirement is available at 42 CFR 482.24B1, and CMS requires Medicare managed care program providers to retain records for 10 years. This requirement is available at 42 CFR 422.504, D2III. Providers, suppliers, in conjunction with each other, should maintain a medical record for each Medicare beneficiary that is their patient. Again, this gets into more re, uh, medical necessity, which is required in order to provide the basis for a good faith claim that is being submitted for payment. But using a system of author identification and record maintenance that ensures the integrity of authentication and protects the security of all record entries is not only a good practice, but if you become under the investigation of either CMS or HHS Office of the Inspector General, you're gonna wanna make sure that you have retained records for at least five years in certain circumstances up to typically 10 years unless you know that there's an investigation, other legal proceeding, or a minor is at issue. The Medicare program does not have requirements for the media formats for medical records, but the medical record needs to be in its original form or in a legally reproducible form, which may be electronic. Providers must have a medical record system that ensures that a record may be accessed 
and, and retrieved promptly. So I gave you the preview with NIST and how it may be used not only as the basis for the standard of care in certain circumstances, whether it forms the basis of a valid contract and it's a requirement by the government or if it's a class action or a negligence case. But here on January the 5th of 2021, House Resolution 7898 was signed into law. And the key item here is that the Secretary of HHS is now allowed to consider whether the covered entity or business associate has adequately demonstrated that it had, for not less than the previous 12 months, recognized security practices in place that may mitigate fines, result in an early audit termination, and mitigate remedies. So the term recognized security practices, I'm going to jump to it right here, developed under NIST. The approaches promulgated under the Cybersecurity Act of 2015, and it, for those of you who are not familiar, there was again a collaboration between the public and private sectors and a great non-binding two-volume set came out which addressed cybersecurity best practices, and then of course, the security rule under HIPAA. So the practices should be determined by the covered entity or business associate or the business associate subcontractor consistent with the HIPAA security rule. It's important to note that while there's no liability for non-participation, there is only upside. So if you are in the process of hiring someone to do your annual risk analysis under HIPAA. I've done this for years, but I've always crosswalked uh, and cross-referenced the NIST standards with the correlating provision in the security rule. Now, Sarbanes-Oxley is vital, and if you are a publicly traded company or an accounting company, or even a lot of not-for-profit companies and not-for-profit health systems do in fact adhere to Sarbanes-Oxley for a lot of accounting purposes. Basically, Sarbanes-Oxley passed in 2002 in the wake of Enron and WorldCom and all of those types of accounting scandals. And basically, Sarbanes-Oxley gave the Securities and Exchange Commission the rulemaking authority. So basically, the Securities and Exchange Commission at 17 CFR Part 210 says, we are adopting rules requiring accounting firms to retain for seven years certain records relevant to their audits and reviews of issuers' financial statements. The objective of 802, again, is specifically there to address the destruction or fabrication of evidence and the preservation of financial and audit records. Section 802 states that the record retention requirement should apply to audits of issuers of securities to which Section 10AA of the Securities Exchange Act of 1934, which is commonly referred to as the Exchange Act. The Securities Act of 1933 is known as the Securities Act applies. So basically, the final rule requires auditor retention of certain items as well as publicly traded 
companies. Another couple of items to consider, Graham-Leach-Bliley, also known as GLIBA, basically financial organizations with customers and consumers who are U.S. citizens must implement security. And part of security is making sure that records are retained for a certain period of time and that they are done in a secure manner. Here, 21 CFR Part 11 relates to the FDA, and that requires that FDA-regulated program areas follow technical and procedural standards for the processing, storage, security, and retention of electronic health records and electronic signatures. Noncompliance can and does result in a large array of FDA actions. Most every company takes credit cards and it's important to be compliant with PCI DSS, which is the Payment Card Industries Data Security Standards. That's there to protect stored cardholder data. And the public assumes merchants and financial institutions will protect data on payment cards to thwart theft and prevent unauthorized use. However, one just needs to read headlines, and over the past few years, we've seen Target, Neiman Marcus, Anthem Blue Cross Blue Shield, and Home Depot, for example, in violation of these types of standards. So PCI DSS has varying merchant levels, and those are based on the number of transactions that are processed per year. So depending on the type of processing or the level of processing that's being done, there may be different merchant requirements. Now, cases and procedural considerations, rule 1004, admissibility of other evidence of content. An original is not required, but other evidence of the content of a writing, recording, or photograph is admissible if all originals are lost or destroyed. That's very important because you wanna make sure you have a backup, and that is one of the key items that we saw not only under SOX Section 802, but also with HIPAA, various Medicare rules, regs, etc. An original cannot be obtained by any available judicial process. The party against whom the original would be offered had control of the original, was at the time put on notice by pleadings or otherwise, and fails to produce it at trial or at a hearing. Obviously, in a ransomware case where some of the data might have been wiped and exfiltrated, that is where your backup is going to come into play. The writing, recording, or photograph is not closely related to a controlling issue. Spoliation of evidence is a big deal, and that's another reason you want to make sure you have adequate document retention and destruction policies, as well as a substantive legal hold policy. Spoliation is the destruction or significant alteration of evidence or the failure to preserve property for another's use of evidence. This can lend one in the sanctions area if the court finds that evidence was destroyed intentionally or it was not maintained and was so reckless that 
it should not have happened. So the three primary reasons courts control the destruction of evidence, promoting accuracy and fact finding, restoring the prejudiced party to the same position with respect to its ability to prove a case, if there had not been spoliation, serving as retribution against the immediate wrongdoers, and managing cases on a crowded docket. Now, computer databases, from research and development to sales and marketing, a company's databases contain valuable information. And when a database is deleted, Basically, often all that has happened is the pointer to where the data has stored has been erased. But the caveat is it depends on the type of system you have, the type of deletion that has been utilized, and you need to make sure that you have adequate sanitization for your media, whether it is a CD-ROM, a USB drive, a server, or a laptop itself. Illinois Toolworks Incorporated versus Metro. Here the court entered an order requiring the defendant to preserve the integrity of all of its computers. And this goes into electronic discovery. Typically in federal court, discovery is primarily governed by Federal Rule of Civil Procedure 26, but there are other rules that relate. In this particular case, based in large part on the testimony of the plaintiff's expert, the court did not believe the defendant's explanation for the computer's failure. Accordingly, the court granted the plaintiff's motion for sanctions based on spoliation. Importantly, not only can an attorney be sanctioned, but their client can be sanctioned by a court. Spoliation, the tort of spoliation has evolved as an independent cause of action under state common law in certain states. There's pending or probable litigation, knowledge of the existence or likelihood of litigation, intentional destruction of evidence, actual disruption of plaintiffs, and then certain states such as Illinois and Florida, as well as the District of Columbia, have an actual tort claim for negligent spoliation. So what are some suggestions in relation to policies and procedures? So first and foremost, you want to adopt written document retention policies that ensures the workforce members follow consistent guidance about document destruction. Next, provide secure shredding containers for documents that can and should be destroyed after use. So if you're in an office setting, oftentimes a third party like Iron Mountain will place bins that are locked and people just put the items that need to be shredded into that bin. And then on a regular schedule, they come and just dump the documents into a huge mobile confetti shredder. Another item to consider is in work from home, make sure that you just have a cross-cut shredder. For example, a paper version of a chart should be appropriately destroyed as soon as the person is finished with it because you know that there is that electronic copy, which is the original. You also want to make sure, again, that you're adhering to state and the federal requirements and utilizing the longer retention period, whether it comes from the state or the federal law. Document destruction going back to NIST, NIST SP 800-88 
recommends that you remove your data in one of three ways, clearing, purging, or destroying. And according even to the IRS, a document retention and destruction policy identifies the record retention responsibilities of staff, volunteers, board members, and outsiders for maintaining and documenting the storage and destruction of the organization's documents and records. So as we wrap up this session and open the floor to questions, I have some concluding thoughts. First and foremost, you wanna emphasize your policies and procedures are reviewed at least annual, annually or comprehensive and are up to date. Ensure that retention periods are up to date for each law that impacts an organization. Cross-reference state and federal laws. Once a legal hold or equivalent is implemented, immediately begin that checklist and a chain of custody document. Upon destruction of information or hardware, make sure to get a certificate from a third party and consult an attorney and or ask a judge for clarification on any issue related to document retention or destruction. So with that, Catherine, I'm gonna hand the floor back to you and I'm happy to answer any questions which may have come about. Okay, thank you so much, Rachel. That was very, very clear. And we do have a few questions. So the first question is, do P and P's apply only to electronic media and um, or all forms of documents? So in terms of document retention and destruction, absolutely. And as I mentioned earlier in the presentation, especially in relation to healthcare, the privacy rule governs all forms of protected health information and the security rule governs specifically electronic protected health information. Okay. Um... So uh, here's another question. What's the best way to avoid spoilate, spoilation? Uh, the best way to avoid spoliation is specifically um, related to making sure you have adequate policies and procedures and ensuring that once you anticipate litigation or you get a request for preservation that you are getting into your legal hold policies creating a checklist of everything that needs to be retained and making sure it's set aside and not dismissed deleted okay all right um let me see what are um, let's see, what are key items to include in document preservation PMPs? Two items to include in document preservation PMPs that are critical are, A, you want to make sure that you have a checklist that you have ready as a template, and the second part of that is a chain of custody document template that you have ready to go. Okay. And and where do where do you suggest getting that template? Do you suggest um, 
uh, creating one of those with your attorney or um, or how do you um, suggest making that? Uh, typically it's done by an attorney and an attorney should be involved in that process. And for my own clients, they contact me and have that set up. Okay. What are technical, physical, and administrative safeguards that are most relevant to protecting PHI and sensitive PII in relation to uh, retaining it and deleting it? That's a great question. So if we break down the security rule, there are those technical, administrative, and physical safeguard requirements. So part of the answer relates to just maintaining that secure environment. And a specific example of an administrative safeguard are your policies and procedures. A physical safeguard is making sure that your data is housed and that two-factor identification is utilized to enter where a server is or where in a data center when you go through that's a great example of a physical safeguard and lastly on the technical side specifically this is that interplay between your policies and procedures and the media sanitation process of completely wiping the data clean and that's something every organization should do in light of the potential for someone getting a hold of an old laptop or stealing that data and selling it on the black market. Do you have any other words of advice you'd like to leave us with today? I would just recommend that in light of the increased focus on cybersecurity, it's going to be imperative to make sure that your disaster recovery plans, your business continuity plans, and your retention and destruction documents are up to date as well as your legal holds. It's also critical to maintain that backup and to ensure that the information is being backed up in a timely manner in the event that a ransomware attack or another disruption occurs. Okay, wonderful, wonderful advice. Um, okay, attendees, please use the contact information on the screen for any additional questions. If you send us any questions, we will forward them on to Rachel. Rachel, I wanted to thank you again so much for being here today, so thank you. Catherine, it's my pleasure, and I look forward to our next presentation. Thank you, thank you, me too. Attendees, please remember your PACOM and PMI CEU certificate be emailed to you from within two days following the broadcast. There's no need to request it. You can register for any future webinars or request a demo of our compliance solution on our website at firsthcc.com or call us at 888-543-4778. And thank you for joining us.